0: The scripture text this morning is from 1 John, chapter 2, 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me open us with a quick word of prayer. Father, again, may you speak to us in the still, small, quiet voice of your Spirit. May our hearts overflow with love for our Savior. May we know that he is present among us. We offer this time up to you for your purposes. May your word be effective and may... Our ears be open to hear it. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So last year, Christianity Today uh, released a podcast that got quite a bit of traction, chronicling the rise and fall of a somewhat well-known megachurch in Seattle, Washington. This church grew explosively in about 17 years. It was 15,000 members across however many campuses and it all kind of rose and fell with this charismatic, highly gifted lead pastor, Mark Driscoll. And the uh, implosion of the church came with his own implosion. There were uh, uh, credible and true accusations of abusive leadership, manipulation, even some underhanded dealing in, fin- in the finances of the church. Um, and in the end, the church leaders end up removing Mark from his pastorate. And they put him in what they were hoping would be a restoration process. So they didn't just fire him, uh, but they removed him from his leadership position and and had a process of repentance, uh, hoping that he would eventually be restored as the lead pastor of the church. But two weeks after he was put into this process, he up and left. And when he left, the church just imploded. um, And we began to realize how much that church was built around one personality. But what was interesting is uh, Mark Driscoll was interviewed later. I don't remember when this was. And he kind of gave his side of, of the story. And the way he described it was him and his wife were praying in those two weeks. And he thought that God had told him, you don't need to stay. You're released. You may go. Which is a very different take on what happened. And, 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 uh, and the difficulty is if someone says something like, God told me, how do you respond to that? And if they say something like, God told me to murder someone, we can say, well, that's obviously wrong. But something that's more subjective like this, I believe God speaks. Maybe you've had a friend who's justified an action you do not think was right, but they said, well, God told me to do it. It kind of shuts down the conversation. Well, 1 John was written to a church that had been infiltrated by false teachers, and these false teachers were coming saying, hey, God told me something. He gave me new knowledge, new information that wasn't given to you when John the Apostle preached to you. It's it's a new knowledge, a secret knowledge, and and God told me. And it was running havoc on the church because they were teaching things that were contrary to what the apostle John had taught them, and uh, and it led to confusion. How do you know who's 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 true, who's false, who's being honest, who is a true Christian, who's not a true Christian? And that's the the, the the context that John is is writing this letter into. And so John gives again over this whole letter. He gives three objective tests that we can hold up our subjective experience of Christianity to. And these, uh, and these are three tests that, by the way, that someone like Mark Driscoll and these false teachers would have failed. But the three tests that we see, again, we're going to be going through them as we look at this letter. The three tests are first test is obedience, obeying the commands of Jesus Christ. The second test is loving one another. And the third test is believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who came in the flesh. How do you know that someone's faith is authentic? How do you know your Christianity is authentic? Well, these are the three tests we hold up to that. Uh, We looked at obeying the commandments of Christ last week. Today, we're looking at loving one another. And then in a few weeks, we'll look at the third test. Now, a reminder, as we're going through this letter, these are not instructions for how we become a Christian. This is not how we gain fellowship with God. These are tests that we do actually have fellowship with God. If we walk with God, it will look like something and ought to look like these. So we're looking at the second test of authentic Christianity. Now, I'll give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning in these verses. Uh, our first point will be an old commandment. Our second point will be a new commandment. And then our third point will be love, the second test of authentic Christianity. So let's go ahead and look at verse seven, follow along as I read it again for us. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, it's actually helpful to look at the passage before this, because again, the first test of authentic Christianity was obedience to the commands of Jesus, chapter 2, verse 3, and by this you can know that you have come to know God if we keep his commandments. So here he's just talking about commandments in general, but here John focuses on one specific commandment. Now, it's interesting, and I don't know why he does this, but he doesn't come out and say what the commandment is. He just refers to it. But it's pretty clear if we kind of put the pieces together what he's talking about. The the whole passage is about loving one another. And actually, later in in 1 John, he kind of repeats himself, and he says, this is the the message you've had from the beginning, that you love one another. And then to top that off, we also have what Jesus said in John 13, 34, which is almost verbatim what John says here in his epistle. But Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So this new commandment that John is focusing on is this commandment to love one another. And John's point in verse 7 is that this is not a new commandment. This is not some kind of newfangled you know, Christian fad, the latest thing on the conference circuit. He's like, this is what I've been preaching and teaching you from the very beginning. Again, to do a little bit of, of kind of mirror reading to try to figure out what's going on, it would seem that these false teachers were, one, characterized by lovelessness. We don't know exactly what that would have looked like, but uh, they did not love people well, and they rationalized it. And the way they rationalized it was saying, look, this, this whole command that we really have to love one another John made it up. It's new. It's this, you know, new progressive, whatever. We don't need to do that. So John is writing to them, saying, no, 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 this is not a new commandment. This is the one that I've been teaching you from the beginning. It's always been basic in what it means to follow Jesus. It's always been part of the deal. In fact, look at the way he describes this. He says it's an old commandment you had it from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. Whenever New Testament writers talk about the word going forth of the word doing x y and z they're using the word as a, as a summary statement for the whole gospel message saying look this is loving one another it's it's not an add-on it's always been part of the basic message of christianity it's always been with john todd again if you look at chapter 1 verse 3 when he says why he's writing he says that, you know we've all that we've seen and heard we proclaim this to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship was with the father It's not just about us having a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's that we might have fellowship with the body of Christ as well. It's always been part of the central message of Christianity. But here's a question. Okay, so you could read that and come away thinking, okay, so then the gospel, the central part of Christianity is just love each other. And honestly, if you talk to a lot of people, even professing Christians and say, hey, summarize Christianity for me, that's basically what they would say. Well, love one another. So, that's not what John is saying. What he is, is, when we get to what's Christianity about, there's two questions we have to answer. First question is, how do we have fellowship with, one, with God? Sorry, how do we have fellowship with God? Because what Christianity is about is having fellowship with God. That's why he's writing to these people that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. So the first question in the gospel message is just how do we have fellowship with God? And what the Bible tells us is that sin breaks fellowship. Our sin separates us from God. Loving each other is not going to restore that relationship. But he tells us very, very clearly in chapter 2, verse 2, Christ is the propitiation of our sins. This is what we looked at last week. This is the foundation all this is built on. Christ, when he died on a cross, he took all of the judgment that our breaking of fellowship with God deserves. He took it all. There was no remainder. There's nothing left for us to take care of. He didn't get it started. He completed it. He is the propitiation. How do we have fellowship with God? We trust in what Christ has done for us. And that restores our fellowship. But then the second question is, what does fellowship with God look like? And that's the question that John is trying to answer, and specifically, if we have fellowship with God, it looks like hearts that are so changed that we want to love each other, and we try to love each other, albeit imperfectly. Again, this is what John has always taught. It's an old commandment. I mean, again, John would have probably led a number of these Christians to the Lord, it's like from the moment you were converted, from the moment you turned to Christ, this is what we've been teaching you. The church is important. Love one another. But it's interesting is that it, it, there's also, that's the main meaning of what John says. He says this is an old commandment. But he, he alludes to some other meanings too. Because look what he says. He says, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. There are echoes of, of, of chapter one, verse one in 1 John, where he says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard and which we have seen. is talking about Christ. What John is saying is like, yes, this is what I've been preaching from the beginning, but it goes back even further than that. Here's the deal. Jesus preached about love, but he didn't make it up. He wasn't the first person to come along and say, oh, by the way, you should love one another. In fact, Jesus said the whole Old Testament could be summed up as loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus wasn't just making that up. I mean, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then Leviticus 19, 18, and you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Moses preached that we should love one another. It's an old commandment, but yet it's even older than Moses. Because the commandment to love one another finds its source in the character of God himself. God is a triune being. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. What that means is that from all eternity, the Father has loved the Son, the Son has loved the Spirit, and the Spirit has loved the Father. For all eternity, God is love. And so, this commandment to love one another finds a source in God itself. It is from the beginning, not just when they were converted, but literally from the beginning, before time began. This is an old commandment. Because love finds its source in God, it's not unique to Christianity. We've got to be clear about this. right? Parents don't have to have any religious inclinations to love their kids and to know that they ought to love their kids. Uh, a husband and a wife do not need to have any religious inclinations to love one another and know they ought to love one another. Because this commandment finds its source in the character of God, it's written on every human heart. And so every culture you look at There's a sense in which we ought to love others. Now we'll get on to how Christianity adds to that and refines that and expands that. But again, this is an old commandment that's true across cultures. And so John is telling them, look, this is not something, (laughs) loving each other is not something I made up, it's not something new. It's been there from the beginning. Fads will obviously come and go, but this commandment abides. Governments and movements will come and go, but this commandment abides. For Christians, if things out there seem like they're going off the rails, what do we do? Well, we do what Christians have done for 2,000 years. We love one another. This is an old commandment. But yet, in another sense, it is a new commandment. This gives us to our second point. A new commandment. Verse 8. At the same time, It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. In what sense is this a new... It's funny, when you read this at first, you're like, "He just," you can't have it both ways, John. It's either an old commandment or a new commandment. And what he's saying is that this is, in one sense, a very old commandment. It finds its source in God's character himself. But in another sense, it's a new commandment. And it's one that is new and true, in Christ, in him. How is it new in Christ? This is a new commandment in Christ because Jesus experienced God's love for him and his love for God in a new and unique way that no human being had ever experienced from the beginning of time, even before the fall. And then Jesus went on to expand the command to love one another and to fulfill it. Again, in new and unique ways that no one else ever had before. So first, Jesus experienced God's love in a new and unique way. In this sense, it's a new commandment. This is one of John's favorite uh, themes in his gospel. He emphasizes the close fellowship between God the Son, Jesus, and God the Father. So for instance, in John five twenty, it says, for the The father loves the son. This is Jesus speaking. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus was very sure that God the father loved him as his son. He never had doubts in that. And further, Jesus loved his father. Again, John 14, 31. I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Eh. (laughs) If Jesus was just a mere man, he's a bit of an egomaniac, because he was very sure that his love for the Father was perfect. But of course, he wasn't just a man, he was God the Son. And so he's speaking truthfully. In fact, Jesus' love for God was so unusual. You know, our love for God, it wanes, waxes and wanes. You know, the closer we get to 12 p.m., our love starts dwindling, because I'm getting hungry. I didn't sleep well. But Jesus' love for God was so constant and his love he experienced from God was so constant that Jesus could describe his life as one that abided, literally sat, rested, remained in the love of God. In John 15, 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus experienced a relationship with God the Father that was new and unique, a love for God, and he experienced a love from God that no one had ever experienced in that level before. There'd been men and women of God before who loved God. There'd been prophets who loved God, who would have believed that God loved them, but none of them ever called God Father. None of them ever could say that they abided in God's love perpetually, without fluctuation. Jesus Again, this is a new commandment and it's true in Christ because Christ experienced a, 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 a relationship with God, experienced God's love in a new and unique way. And this then led him to love others in a new and unique way, in a way that expanded who we're supposed to love. Again, loving isn't unique. Uh, every culture believes you should love someone, but it's the question of who should we love? And Jesus expands this in one of the most profound ways in one of the more famous parables of the Good Samaritan. Almost everyone knows this parable. It's beautiful. It's kind of the you know, quintessence of a good story. But this man, a Jew, goes on a on a trip. He gets jumped and beat up by a bunch of bad guys. He's lying on the road dying. And along comes a priest. And you think, well, this is a priest. He spends his time in the temple of God. Of course he'll help. But he passes by and then a Levite comes, you're like, well, he's not a priest, but he also still spends his time in the temple of God. Of course he'll stop and help a fellow brother Jew. And the Levite moves on, and then a Samaritan comes. And of course, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. There's ethnic hatred that went back generations. And the Samaritan stops, and he helps this man, and he cares for him, and he pays for his care out of his own purse. But the question that Jesus is answering in that parable is a question posed by a religious leader who knew, Leviticus 19, 18, that he's supposed to love his neighbor and himself. And so the the religious leader is like, okay, I want to know who my neighbor is. I want to know who I'm supposed to love so that I can then not love anybody else. That's the... And so the man asks, who then is my neighbor? Jesus' answer, as he expands the scope of what it means to love another, is whoever needs help. That's who your neighbor is. It's not just your fellow Jew... It's not just your literal neighbor. It's literally anyone who needs your help. Jesus, it's, it's a new commandment in Christ because he took a commandment that is an old commandment and he expanded it far beyond where we naturally would want to apply it. In fact, he went even further than this into the realm of absurdity, which is that in Matthew 5, 43 to 44, he says, you've heard it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies Jesus expanded. It's a new commandment in Christ because he took a commandment that existed for all time and he expanded it to even our enemies. Now here's the thing. If all Jesus came to do was to to experience a deeper love for God and from God and to then expand the scope of this commandment and then left, it would crush us. If that's all he came to do, it would just be another law, another standard we could never hit. I mean, I can't even love the people I'm supposed to love, right? (laughs) Like, I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect dad. I'm not a perfect pastor, much less loving my enemies. If this is all Jesus came to do, it would crush us. But it's not. Jesus didn't just come to expand this commandment. He came to fulfill it. This is the third way that this is a new commandment, that Christ fulfills it. In Romans 5, verses 7 to 8, The Apostle Paul describes what Jesus did. He said, Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though maybe someone would be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were sinners. What he's saying is like, look, your your, your average decent, you know, whomever, no one's going to die for that person. Maybe if you're like a Mother Teresa... You could work up enough nobility, people would be like, I'm willing to die for this person. But Jesus didn't just die for a decent person, he died for sinners. And in fact, it wasn't just sinners. Colossians 121 says, before we came to Christ, we were enemies of God. Jesus fulfilled his own commandment by loving his enemies who were us. If you've seen the, uh, uh, the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, um, came out in the early 2000s. It's a World War II drama and it, it uh, chronicles the story of the Easy Company and the 101st Airborne Division. And part of what makes it such a compelling miniseries is that these men develop like a brotherhood, hence the band of brothers, as they go through war together and they go through sorrow together and fear together. And it creates these incredible bonds of camaraderie where they would literally lay their lives down for each other at a heartbeat. And they do, again and again and again. And you watch it and, you know, you I've never experienced that kind of camaraderie. I've never been in war. But you can understand it. It's beautiful and noble. You can understand. Again, it makes sense. Love those who are near to you. What wouldn't make sense, though, is if these band of brothers started laying down their lives for the Nazis. That's when it would stop being a heroic film, and it would just be absurd. That makes no sense. You don't lay your life down for your enemies. This is what Jesus did, though. He didn't just die for the good. He didn't just die for the decent. He died for sinners. He died for his own enemies. That was us. Again, if Jesus just expanded a commandment and said, hey, go fulfill it, that'd be crushing. But Jesus first fulfilled it for us by loving us who were his enemies. And so we can now love one another because Christ has so abundantly loved us. It's a new commandment that is true in Christ but it's also true in you. John is writing to Christians. He says a Christian is one who's experienced the deep love of God, the love of the God who'd pursue us into our darkness, into our shame and our guilt, and then he makes us his own. And we who have experienced that, we can now love others. Vine Street, this is true of you. It's true in Christ, this new commandment, and it's true in you. And it's one of the things I love about this church. Because there's many ways, you know, this church loves each other really well. In small ways that no one will know. Every Sunday when Betty Barnes drives Betty Jeffries. Or when Jack Vanderhill and Jake Beckman show up at Maple's apartment to help remove her furniture so she can replace her rugs or when people bring mules to the Hodges when Silas was born. Or Juanita, even though she can't join us anymore, she still writes birthday cards for every kid. My kids still get them. It's true in you. I see evidences of it. And as we live this out, this new commandment, To not just love our neighbors as ourselves, but to love our neighbors as Christ loved us. As we live it out, it demonstrates to the world that the light has come. That's the whole point of the second part of the verse, that darkness is passing away, the true light is shining. That's demonstrated when the church loves each other as Christ has loved the church. It's demonstration that the light has come. And the prince of darkness is losing his grip. This is the second point. It's a new commandment. That Christ brings, or that John brings. And this brings us to our last, our third point, which is love, the second test of authentic Christianity. Follow along as I read verses 9 to 11. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. And he walks in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. After John has laid out these theological categories of what Christ came to do, he just makes a logical deduction. Look, if if Christ loved his enemies, if Christ loved, if we want to walk with Christ, we'll, we'll act like him. And if we don't act like him, then we don't have fellowship with Christ. It's a very simple, logical deduction. But there's a question here because, again, John paints two options. He says you either hate your brother and sister or you love them. And I don't know if if, if you're like me, but I tend to think there's a whole lot in between those two. Like there's not a whole lot of people that I really love or really hate. I'm not sure there's anyone I could say I could hate. But there's a whole lot of people. It's like somewhere in between, right? So what does John mean specifically when he says whoever hates his brother? Typically, when you think of the word hate, we think of an extreme emotion, something that kind of prompts violence, right? The Nazis hated the Jews and so they tried to kill them all. That's what we think of as hatred. And if that's what John means, and this, verse doesn't, this passage probably doesn't apply to many of us, but it's not what John is getting at. Because the Bible oftentimes uses the word hate much, broad, much more broadly, So, for instance, Jesus in in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6.22 says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Jesus is saying exclusion, rejection, mocking, that's a form of hatred. When school children play outside and one of the kids is not allowed to play, it's a form of hatred. Or we could look at the Holocaust survivor, Ellie Weasel, who said most profoundly. So the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. Just simple indifference to someone in need is a form of hatred. And so what John is saying is, look, if, if we show indifference to those in our midst who have need, if we mock those who claim to follow Christ, if we're harsh with our brothers and sisters in Christ, it may be a sign that we're walking in darkness. That's the test of authentic Christianity. Now, how do we apply this test? You know, again, it makes a lot of sense. It just flows very logically. But how do we apply it? Well, first, I think this should go into what we think makes for a healthy church. Um, I, I don't know if this is just like a Southern Baptist thing, but I feel like everyone is talking about healthy churches. We want to be in healthy churches. Healthy churches. Healthy churches. Healthy churches what's strange is that when I hear people use those words, it seems like often all they mean is a church with a particular ecclesiology that holds the particular theological commitments. This is a healthy church. But then these churches that are supposedly healthy are literally tearing each other apart over COVID, over politics. I think ecclesiology and theological commitments obviously are necessary. Hence, we have a doctrinal statement as a church. But here's the point. If a church, it doesn't matter if a church has a perfect ecclesiology, perfect doctrinal statement, if it is a church that is not loving each other, it is a church in darkness. That's what, that's what John is saying. It's not, an, you know, loving each other is not somehow like a secondary thing. And so as we think about church health, what, is, makes, what makes a church healthy? Loving one another ought to be a central aspect of that. But John doesn't just give this to us so that we might think in kind of abstract terms, but he wants us to apply it to ourselves. Now, here's the thing about 1 John is John is actually writing to encourage his readers. He's trying to assure them. This is a church that's gone through a church split. The false teachers have taken many with them. Those who remain are confused and discouraged. And John is trying to assure them, like this is how you can know you really are in a fellowship with God. And those who left, they are the Antichrist. So he's trying to assure them for those who have sensitive spirits and, and want and strive to love each other, Strive to serve, and then they snap at the customer service rep on the phone, and they think, "Where did I, am I even a Christian? He says, look, if you're loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is substantive evidence that you are in fellowship with the God, with God Almighty. And for those who are walking through a spiritual wasteland and God feels distant, look, if you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is substantive evidence that God is near you, you are in fellowship with him. That's what John is going for, but nonetheless, there still is a, a call for introspection. How are we doing? Do we pass these tests? Now it's interesting. I, you know, probably many of us will take spiritual stock at times, like how am I doing spiritually? We ask each other these questions, and, and oftentimes what we go to is we go to spiritual disciplines. Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I fighting particular sins? And those are good; those are important measures of spiritual health. But we should also be asking: Am I loving my brothers and sisters in a church? And how am I doing in that? That's that's substantive evidence for our spiritual health. But the question is: Okay, how do we love one another? What does that look like? Again, it can be very subjective. Does it mean I need to walk in on Sunday morning and just feel warm fuzzies for everybody? Like, oh, I just feel so, feel so much love. I mean, I hope you do. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. I do, but that's not what necessarily John is talking about. And so I've thought up three, hopefully more objective criterion, as we try to apply this test to ourselves: Are we loving one another? Here are three that hopefully make it a little bit more concrete for us. And these are not the only, you know—this is not the only way to think about it. But this is just what I came up with: three criterion to consider. Are we loving one another well? And the first question they ask ourselves is simply: Am I showing up? It's very hard to love people you don't see. Now, there is a, a big caveat in this, um, because we have members who physically be very difficult to come to a lot of church events. Uh, there are seasons of life where it's very difficult. When Marco was in her first year of residency, she worked six days a week, about 70 hours a week. And so there, there just wasn't a whole lot beyond the Sunday gathering that she was involved in. Although I will say this, she still wanted a community group, small group, so way to go, babe. But there's just, there's seasons in life where like realistically it's okay, you know, there's discernment. Are we showing up? But the question is, are we really as involved as we are able to be given our circumstances, given who we are? And I'm talking about not just Sunday morning. Sunday morning should be the bare, the bare minimum. But are we coming to Sunday school, uh, adult Sunday school before service? How about small groups, discipleship groups, prayer meeting? Super Sunday. These are all touch points in which we can begin to build relationships with people because, again, am I showing up? It's next to impossible to love people that we don't know. And it's really hard to know people if it's just an hour a week. So am I showing up? That's the first kind of litmus test we can ask ourselves. Second question we can ask ourselves in terms of loving one another is am I serving? Am I giving of my time, my resources, to serve the practical needs of the body? It's a very concrete way we can express our love for one another and i tell you what we need we need a lot we have a lot of volunteer needs we always need nursery workers because we only have one service if you're in nursery you're missing the sermon you're missing what we view as the most important part of why we gather which is to hear from god's word and so we can't have the same nursery workers every other week it'd be really unhealthy for them and so it's 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 a burden that has to be shared by the body or it's not going to work we need nursing. We also need, uh, we need someone to make coffee in the mornings. That's a real simple one. Get her early and make coffee. We need someone to take out the trash. In the fall, we're going to need people to sign up to make meals for Super Sundays, which are our fellowship meals. They're such an important rhythm in our church life. We're going to need, uh, and we desperately need, volunteers for House and Grounds. Can I get an amen, Pat? Um, we need people to help with that. There's all kinds of volunteer needs. Are you serving? Am I serving? These are not flashy stuff. You probably won't get awards. But they're concrete ways to love the body of Christ. And then the last question to ask, is my membership here costing me anything? This is where my inner John Piper comes out a little bit, like, we need to suffer and glory in our sufferings. Church membership is an immense blessing. If you're a member of a church, if you, if, and now if, if you're a Christian, you're, you're a member of a church whether you go or not. But you have a family You have brothers and sisters in Christ. You have mothers and fathers in Christ, grandpas and grandfathers in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're the last living member of your family. It doesn't matter if your family has abandoned you. It doesn't matter if you have no friends. You have a family forever. You will never be alone. That's a beautiful, beautiful blessing. But at the same time, loving people always have a cost. It'll be an emotional cost, a relational cost. Sometimes you'll be hurt. So, does your membership cost you anything? And if it doesn't, it might be a sign that we're not loving people, because it always costs to love people. So that's just some, hopefully, more objective, concrete ways to think through, how are we doing in terms of loving one another? Because this is the second test that John gives us of authentic Christianity, of authentic faith, is to love one another. Again, this is not how we become Christians. We have to keep reminding ourselves because our hearts want to be able to justify ourselves before God, but we stand before God with only one claim, which is that Christ is my propitiation. He is the one who's atoned for my sin. He has removed it all, and I love him. But that will look like something. The light of the world has come, and one way that we can know we have fellowship with him, one way we can know that we walk with him, is that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love them as Christ has loved us. It's how we assure our hearts that we are his. It's how we can discern between false churches and true churches. And maybe even more important, it's a powerful witness to a watching world. Our love for one another is meant to be a kind of rubber meets the road image of how Christ has loved us unconditionally when we didn't deserve it. And with the watching world, we love each other so that the world can look in and say, see how they love one another. I'm not sure I can make sense of it, but I want to know more. May that happen in our body. Let's pray. Jesus, may we exult in the fact that you did not die for the good and the upright but for the sinners. You died for your enemies and you've made your enemies into your own brothers and sisters. We who have received such grace, may we grow in that and may that lead to us loving one another. May, may, may this body whom you bled and died for may it be an aroma of your grace and how we care for one another and how we show up for one another and how we even lay down our lives for one another. May you do this by your Spirit, for we and ourselves are insufficient, but you are more than sufficient. We worship you in spirit and truth. In your holy name we pray, amen.